Bandwidth for this episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by MidasGreen Technologies, virtual private servers submerged in oil. Find out more at MidasGreenTech.com slash 5x5. Mac Power Users, Episode 58, The Google Lifestyle. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. How are you, David? Doing well, Katie. Looking forward to talking about Google. Yeah, you know, we talked about mail in our last, uh, I guess, two episodes ago now. We talked about mail, and we got a lot of great feedback about Gmail and Google and uh, alternatives. And we thought that it, you know, we knew at some point we wanted to do a, a show kind of all-inclusive about the, the Google apps and um, thought that this might be a good opportunity to do so. Yeah, to be honest, I was a little hesitant to do this show because I feel like I'm not a Google Power user. But then I got thinking about all the stuff I do on Google, and I think I do quite a bit when I think about it. Um, so, yeah, we got the Mac Power users mail on Google. I'm a big user of Google Reader, some of the other services. So I think we can do this show. Yeah, so we're going to talk about some some Google services that we've touched on in other shows. For example, we're going to talk about Google Mail that we talked about extensively in our mail episode. So we may not get down into the nitty-gritty when we've covered them in other apps. We're going to talk about contacts and calendars, which we spoke about in our contacts and calendar show. And then we're also going to talk about Chrome and Docs and Reader and some other Google services. So I, I guess there's a lot to do. We might as well just dig on, dig right on in. Yeah, let's do it. So the first thing let's talk about is why would you or would you not want to live in the Google lifestyle? Because, you know, David, I know you were you were somewhat hesitant about getting involved in Google. And then I just kind of said, hey, David, I've switched the Mac Power users mail over to Google. It's done by. Sort of. <laughs> uh, I've never been a big fan of Google Mail. And we talked about this in prior shows about yeah. the way they, they advertise based on the content of the mail, which means something somewhere is reading the email to come up with that stuff. And for my day job, I'm not really a big fan of that idea. Uh, for my personal stuff, I'm not really as hung up on it. And I don't know if it's because maybe this is a fanboy thing. I, I'm just not as big of a fan of Google as I am having the native apps on the Mac. You know, I'm not a big a fan of, of web apps. And so, you know, and that's what Google really nails. So it's just never been really a big thing for me, to be honest with you. I kind of had it sunk home for me just last week, back when we were talking about doing the show. I've got a client that's a big advertising firm in L.A., and they do you know lots of money with Google every month. And we had a problem with our contract with Google, and uh, I called the Google lawyer, and the client called their account rep, and both of us got calls back in like five minutes. You know, it was like right away. They were like right on it for us. And, you know, then the same day I was having trouble with Google Mail, and I was thinking, man, I just need to call somebody to get this sorted out. And I realized they didn't How'd that work for you? They don't, they don't even have a phone number. <laughs> you know, they've got some great online resources, and there's lots of you know, good online pages where we can get questions answered. But, but it just really sunk home for me at that moment that you know, as a user of the Google services, I am not Google's customer. You know, they have a phone number, and if you're buying advertisements, they're going to return your call. But if you're just using these services... You're more, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but you're more of a product. You know, your eyeballs are what they're selling. So, you know, they make all this stuff really nice for a reason, because they want you to use it so they can sell your eyeballs to people like my client. That's okay, you know, but just, I think that's kind of a nice 
thing to keep in mind when you start, you know, digging in with this Google stuff. I mean, are you okay with that? And like I said earlier, I'm okay with that for my personal stuff. I mean, if somebody wants to know that I'm thinking about buying a new block plane, I don't really care. But if I'm writing an email to a client, I don't want someone, you know, parsing that. And, and we'll talk about Google Apps for Businesses a little later because there are different levels of services with different levels of privacy and so forth and so on. But a lot of people do have privacy concerns about Google, specifically because Google is in the business of collecting information. And particularly with your mail and your contacts and your calendars and with now with Google Plus, all of that information is stored on Google service, servers. And it is a massive amount of information. And they do use that information for ad matching purposes. Um, you know, and that is one of the reasons or, or that Google is able to keep their products for the most part free for the end user. Um, and maybe you call that free, maybe you, you call that ad supported, but the end result is I don't pay any money to Google for my Google mail and I'm using an awful lot of storage on their site. Yes. So that's, you know, that's the first question you have to answer. Are you okay with that? And if you are, then, um, then you should listen to the rest of this show. And then the, the user interface that you, you brought up now, that's kind of a love it or hate it thing. Some people would call the the Google web interface uh, one of the greatest things about using Google. I'm not I'm not so thrilled with it, and I tend to use Google as a back end service for other interfaces that I have. But some people love the Google interface, and Google's got some great keyboard shortcuts that if you can really master the Google keyboard shortcuts, you can really become a Google Power user and blaze through. Uh, your Gmail or your calendar or your reader and be very productive using using Google's web interface. But it's kind of one of those things that you have to be able to wrap your mind around. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that stuff as we get through them. But, uh, you know, I know people that use it just as the a web interface or people who use third-party apps, and we've got a couple of those listed as we go through the show. So I think it's time to just dig in. Right. Okay, okay. well, let's talk about Gmail first. That's the big one. That's the big one. It should be fresh on our minds because we're just coming off our mail episode. If you haven't listened to that, I think that's episode 56. So why would you want to use Gmail over other service providers? Well, the big thing that we touched on already is it's it's free for the end user, You know, assuming you don't have a Google Apps account or free or, I guess I should use the term, ad-supported. And it does have IMAP support, which is a lot better than some of these, you know, maybe ISP-based emails that you have through your service provider, which may only support POMP. I also personally like the fact that it's not tied to an ISP. So you've got this one, you know, email source that you can take with you, whether, you know, you're using Bell South or Comcast or any other service provider. It goes with you wherever you go. Um, and of course, it's got great junk mail filter. Yeah. You know, we got an email from a, a listener saying you guys should have talked about Yahoo Mail because that's even easier than Gmail. I'm not sure about that. But, um, I do put a lot of people on Gmail. I have tried Yahoo Mail. I've, I've actually had a Yahoo Mail account before. I don't think that they have IMAP support on the desktop unless you pay for it. I think there's different levels of support for Yahoo Mail. And that is why I have veered away from it in the past. I think they have certain levels of support, and they do support the iPhone better than they do the desktop apps. Um, now, we've got iCloud coming out soon, so you're going to have a free IMAP solution from Apple as well. That's true, because remember, MobileMe used to be, you know, pay-based. Yeah, but until that happens, my standard go-to with when setting up a, you know, for a friend, a lot of times they've got old AOL accounts or ISP accounts, and I say you need to get yourself a real email address. 
And, you know, the go-to is Gmail. Set them up with a Gmail account. Because you can view and read that, and Apple Mail works just fine. I mean, we are doing the show from the perspective of a Mac user. Right. And um, there are also some very good third-party apps. Um, in our mail show, I talked about Sparrow, how I thought it was kind of a minimalist interface and a, a nice email client. What I should have said in that show, and I think somebody wrote in to, uh, to, to remind me, is that Sparrow really you know, got its legs as a Gmail client for the Mac. I mean, that's what it really is at the, at the core level. I mean, before, I think you pay for it, the free version is just Gmail. It's very good. So if, if you like Gmail but you don't care for the Gmail interface, you should look at Sparrow. And then there's, of course, MailPlan, Mail right. which we also talked about during the, the show. But for a minute, let's just assume you're using Gmail. And I think if you are, you should at least give the web interface a try. Um, the first thing is it's got a lot better. I mean, just recently they've started you know, unrolling these uh, new interface improvements because I think they realize that's always been a dig about them. I mean, Google, they say, is a company full of engineers and Apple's a company full of designers. And to a certain extent, that's true. Um, forget, I'll have to see if I can find it, but there was an article on the web that made its rounds you know, about a year or two ago. And they were talking about how they were trying to pick the color blue for a, or an interface on Google. And they did all these metrics about, you know, what people liked and who clicked what color the most. And they, you know, they just, they did it like an engineer. Whereas at Apple, you would just say, you know, a designer would say, well, this is the color blue that I think is the most attractive. And, and that would be the end of it. A designer or a CEO. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, it's just two different philosophies. And, to a certain extent, you know, I thought the interface always suffered for that. You know, it's very boxy and and not very pretty. But man, you know, you can really fly on this thing. I mean, one of the things they did with Gmail that I think was just brilliant was the way they do the keyboard shortcuts. I mean, we've always had this thing where if you want to do a keyboard shortcut, and even to this day, most of my keyboard shortcuts on my Mac, you know, you've got to mash down two or three modifier keys and then, you know, peck a letter. Well, in Gmail, they take all that out. You just hit the letter. You know, if you want to compose a new email, you hit C. You know, if you want to star it, you just type S. There's no, you know, you don't have to, have to hold down the control key or anything. It just happens. And as little as that change sounds, it makes all the difference for you flying through your email. Do you work in the Gmail interface much, Katie? Very little. In fact, really only when it's the only option available. Okay, so let me tell you a few of my favorites. I... I just love J and K. I mean, J, K are... Forward and back. They're magic. You know, forward and backward through conversation. If you want to go next and previous message, it's N or P, which makes sense. But J and K are the two letters that you'll use all the time. Um, you know, I think... I'm sure there's a website. I'm going to look up a link and find some... Um, there must be a summary of these somewhere. There's, uh, I put a link in the show notes to um, all the Gmail keyboard shortcuts. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So, so, like, the archive, you press E, which I always thought was... Unintuitive, but it works once you get used to it. S is to start. Um, you know, if you want to reply, you hit R. If you want to reply all, you hit A. So that's where the A goes. But you know, all this stuff is really, really fast. So you, you're, you let's say you've got a big pile of, of email, and I guess that's probably an internal problem at Gmail anyway. So that's why this is so fast. These guys are dealing with it every day. Um, the other thing that they have on Gmail that a lot of people don't realize is they do have kind of a a combo key. Uh, modifier and instead of holding down a control key, you trigger these by hitting one letter and then the the next. So, like if you want to jump to all mail, 
you hit G for go and then A for all mail. Or if you want to go to your starred, you hit G for go and then S for starred. So, you know, if you spend a little time kind of incorporating these uh, key combinations into your workflows on the email client, you're going to find that you're really fast at email, much faster than you could ever do it in mail app. The other thing that I like about Gmail is they do seem to be always innovating and you know, so a lot of their features are beta, or a lot of their features are what they call the labs features. So you never quite know if they're going to stick around. Um, but for example, now they've got this priority inbox. So if you've got something that's important versus something that's not important, you can kind of take a glance at that and see. Um, or they've got this Google Labs feature where you can go in and you can turn on add-ins to your mail. Um, so if you go in and there's a, there's a whole different slew of settings that you can add uh, on top of your different mail options. And if you go into settings that you can tweak much more beyond the basic Google interface. And then they also have great support for um, server-side mail filters, which I think is far, far superior to the server-side mail filters on Apple Mail. And I have yeah. used that to refine and and filter things, you know, to a much further extent on Google Mail as a way of filtering them before they get to my primary email address. Anything that's server-side, you can pretty much bet that Google's going to do a better job of it than Apple. Right. And, and the same thing with the spam filters. We talked about that in the mail show. You know, it's funny because, you know, we're, we're at a crossroads here where Apple is getting into the Internet services business for real. And Gmail now has bought Motorola and they're going to get into the hardware business for real. And we're all asking ourselves the same thing. I mean, everybody's saying, well, how do we know, you know, Google can, can make hardware? They've never really done it before. And we're asking ourselves the same thing. How do we know that Apple and make an internet service. And uh, so it'll be very interesting to see how the next, you know, six months to a couple of years develop around those things. Right. The other thing that I like about uh, Gmail, and we talked about this in the mail show as well, is that it, it does have excellent ability to allow you to consolidate multiple email accounts into one, if that's what you want to do, if you still have old email accounts that you wanted to use. So you can pull multiple accounts in and you can reply from other accounts that, you know, if someone wanted to go and comb through the headers, they could probably tell. But for average everyday use, you could pull, you could set your Gmail account to reply from other accounts as though you were replying from that account. So those are nice features, as well as pulling mail from other pop accounts or forward mail. And Yeah, if you use Gmail, spend some time, go on the web interface and go into the preferences and you'll be surprised what's available. And go all the way through the preferences. Yeah. So does it change anything for you, though? I mean, getting ready for the show and spending a little more time with Gmail, does it change your opinion of it? I have been using Gmail more and more. Obviously, we use it now for um, our Mac Power Users Mail, and we use that through a Google Apps account. But I have now started using Gmail, and I think I mentioned this in our mail show, as a filter for all non-human-based email that comes to my primary account. So if if I do not know you personally and directly you do not get my email address. Instead, you get a Gmail address that I've set up custom filters, custom labels, custom, you know, forwarding and reply options using some of these uh, Google features that has, has almost eliminated all of my spam and junk mail. Well, that's so what kind of rules do you imply? You put server side rules on for this stuff. Oh yeah. I've got some server server side rules. Um, uh, let me see. I've, I've got more in the account that I'm not logged into right now. But f- for example, there's um, <laughs> there is another Katie Floyd 
who I'm sure gets a lot more email for me than I do for her. But at one point she has, she must have given out my email address accidentally as though it was hers. And I have gotten a slew of email for her. Um, let's see. She got married recently. I got a bunch of her wedding information. I have not gotten any <laughs> gifts yet, but I got information about planning her honeymoon. She got a new job recently. Congratulations, Katie. Um, and I got information about her interview. So I tried to forward, you know, some of the important stuff. I actually got in contact with her. Um, but there are some people who will just not take me off their list. So unfortunately, I've had to set up a slew of server side email filters. Um, and these are legitimate messages. I mean, messages from her alumni association that have been coming to me that I've just had to set up a slew of messages to get rid of them. So do you delete them or forward them to her? Um, some of them I forward to her. Um, some of some of them I've just you know those that are are more bacony type messages, those that are you know lists and things like that. I've just started deleting. Yeah, yeah, that's an intelligent use of Google. You know, as a filter to make sure that you know you can keep the stuff out. While Apple Mail has rules, you know, you have to have a Mac turned on for those to work. And uh, with the server side stuff, it's happening all the time. In the background, I don't even see it. I don't even have to be bothered with it. Yeah. Well, there it is, Gmail. I mean, I think it's it's very useful. We've we've got some listeners who swear by it. I know that at one point Merlin swore by it. I think he still does. And uh, David Wayne, another one of our popular workflow guests, is all about Gmail. So you know, it's it's a good service. I don't think there's any reason, uh, any bad reason to use it. I mean, I think if if you're okay with it, as long as you understand, as we we're talking about, you know, that your eyeballs are the product that they're selling. And you're comfortable with that. I mean, why not? It's it's a very robust service. Well, I think the we did address the concerns about privacy. There there is one other concern that we talked about in our mail show that I just think we should bring up for people who may not have heard that, and that is that Gmail does use a slightly different IMAP sort of implementation, and it there's some tweaks that are necessary to make it play nicely with Apple Mail. And um, there's a wonderful MacWorld article that goes through all of that. Um, to help you tweak Gmail so that it will play nicely with Apple Mail and so that you don't get duplicates and all of these extra labels and folders. And I'll stick a link to that in the show notes. But if you just stick a, and you can use Gmail with Apple Mail, but if you just do it without making some straight modifications, you'll end up with like an all mail folder and some duplicates and some other things. So I'll stick a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And the the point is that, you know, Gmail, the IMAP usually is identifying the location of the mail you know, which folder it's in. Whereas Gmail is using IMAP to indicate the tags and you can have multiple tags on an email. And that's another big benefit of Gmail we haven't discussed. So you can tag a Gmail with uh, all these different tags and it makes finding them so much easier if you're a tagger. And, uh, but you know, when the IMAP on the Mac sees that it gets confused because it doesn't understand why there's multiple IMAP. Tags. It translates it to folders or mailboxes. All right. Well, the other thing that, that Gmail does, which kind of goes hand in hand with, or I'm sorry, Google does that kind of goes hand in hand with mail, uh, is contacts. And there's not a whole lot to say about contacts other than it's there. It will, um, once you have this kind of global contact uh, or address book within Google, um, it will filter through to all of your Google services. You can set up contacts to sync both with address book on the map as well as to your various mobile devices. And once you have your address books in sync everywhere, then they're available everywhere. So I'm not pretty sure nice. how much to say about that. Yeah, but it, it is pretty nice because it's a web-based service. You know, it's from a company that, you know, knows the web and, you know, it's going to be reliable. 
and uh, and it syncs with just about any service you want. You know, it, it is the lingua franca. I think both contacts and calendars are this way. A lot of times when you get hung up, if you've got like a weird system at work that's kind of proprietary and you want to get it to your Mac somehow, a lot of times contacts and calendars, the best way to get it is to find a way to get that weird system at work to uh, Google. Oh, and that's, then once, that's what you do, isn't it? Uh, sort of. I mean, I've kind of modified it over the years, uh, but... And that's in the calendars. I guess we can move on to calendars. The, um, you know, so calendars, you know, Google calendars is, I think, probably the best web-based calendar service available. I think it's just really fantastic. It's got a lot of the same knocks against it that uh, Gmail does. You know, it's kind of ugly. And, uh, you know, you don't know how many people or how many computers are, are scanning your calendar. And I don't know what that means. But, you know, something's happening. <laughs> Google's got to make money on this stuff. And um, but it's really rock solid. It's on the internet. They've got great keyboard shortcuts so you can quickly add and remove and adjust appointments and send invitations. Um, they're very aggressive with the Google you know, experimental features. Always trying to make the calendar better. I mean, they've got some scheduling stuff now and all sorts of of great features that you just don't get on a native desktop app. And they're always um, integrating their calendar in with with other services. For example, I know they're they're integrating in with a, a service that we use called Schedule Once, so that you can show your availability to people and say, okay, you can schedule appointments with me based on my Google Calendar, and you can have other outside services look at your Google Calendar to determine your availability, and you can tell people, okay, schedule an appointment with me based on this availability. So, Google has built in a lot of hooks that allow other services. Um, to allow you to interface with other people outside of the Google system to connect with you. I don't really know why I haven't moved a lot of my calendaring over to, to Google Calendar because, you know, you know, iCal really is not that great. You know, I mean, especially I, I think with Lion, it kind of works. You, know, you mean make, from an interface standpoint? Well, just in general, I mean, the feature list is not very big. And uh, so what you're done, doing on the Mac, if you want a native calendar app is you're probably going to go with BusyCal. And, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do with, with Google Calendar, which is, you know, it's free service and you're good to go. I guess the only thing for me is, once again, the day job, I, I'm not really eager to put all my client meetings and court appearances somewhere on Google Calendar. And I, I don't know if I'm just being unreasonable about it, but I'm just not there yet. Mm, I don't really care if people know what I'm doing I just or where where I am. I guess I just don't want them to know what the specifics, but you know, one of the nice things about Google calendar is you can create multiple calendars. And we discussed about having multiple calendars sync to your, your iPhone um, on the last show. And I got several email follow up about that. And we talked about if you have uh, Google sync via exchange and push notifications that it only syncs your primary calendar. And while that is true by default, there are actually ways that you can go in and set up to have it sync multiple calendars. So we'll put a link to that information in the show notes. So you can just set up Google Calendar once um, and have it sync all of your calendars via push and via exchange through the iPhone. But you can share and subscribe calendars and you can send out notifications. It has support for invitations and RSVPs. And, you know, David, you mentioned this. And other than I think I, I think Mobile Me Calendar has gotten a lot better now that it has gone to the CalDev standard. But I'm not really sure what it has over Google Calendar at this point because Google Calendar will sync with iCal 3, which is I think that is Leopard and up. Um, and with BusyCal as well, because it also supports the CalDev standard. So 
I think Google Calendar can do everything the Mobile Me Calendar can do and a whole lot more at this point. Yeah. The way I use Google Calendar with my work is uh, we're on an Office, um, I think, 2003 server. Okay. So it's very old. And it doesn't sync. The uh, the syncing with the calendar doesn't work with the uh, built-in exchange support on, on Lion or Snow Leopard before it. So... You know, the only way to get calendar data over is to figure out some other method. So what I use, there's a free app, and I will put it in the show notes. It's a, it's a Windows app, and it, it, it's called Google Calendar Sync. I think it's issued by Google, in fact. And all it does is take your Outlook calendar and copies it to a Google calendar. And you can make it two ways or one way. And I make it one way just because I, you know, how calendars can get screwed up. I don't want to be responsible for that. And, uh, so I, I basically publish it to a Google Calendar, and then and then I subscribe to that on my Mac, and it displays it. And I've done that for years, but I've kind of got to the point where I'm not using that anymore. Now I'm just because the the iPad and the iPhone work just fine with the 2003 Exchange Network, and I can you know really have more control over you know changing appointments and whatnot. I'm getting to the point where I just don't use my Mac as a calendaring device because of this problem. You know, it's easier just to do it on my iPad. I don't know if that was useful at all. <laughs> well, the, the beauty about having a Google Calendar set up, which you can now do with a mobile me calendar, is you know, you can set up multiple calendars. So you can have your work calendar and then you can have a family calendar. You can have a kids calendar and you can share the kids calendar with your wife or with your you can have a, a kids calendar for each kid and share that with your wife and each kid, and then they can add events and change events and move events. And then you can see all of those calendars. Now you can do that now with CalDev and MobileMe as well. Yeah, it used to be you had to buy BusyCal to do that. Now you can do it with the native support. But I'm still a fan of BusyCal. I think they do a nice product there. Right. It's like Google. They're more nimble. You know, Apple, you know, changes to iCal only come every few years when you get a major update to the operating system. And they aren't always about making it better for power users. In fact, it's usually just the opposite. And that torn paper is kind of driving me nuts. Though it is pretty cool if you use it with a magic track, if you use it with a trackpad and swipe back and forth. Yeah, that is nice. It's a two-finger swipe. You can move forward or backward in the calendar. There was an article on the web about removing the the little fringy paper on the top. And I bookmarked it thinking that I'd go back and do it. Then I got thinking, what's worse? uh, Looking at that or actually wasting time to go in and change the resource file so it's gone. I mean, is that... I think that's almost too manic. I mean, when I start to think about it, so. I'm, I'm sure it'll show up in secrets at some point. So all you have to do is click a button. I think there's also an app now. I think there's actually an app about, you know, um, tweaking lion app or something. I'm, I'll have to look it up and see if I can find it. I think you can do it with a push of a button now. And I may do it for that. I don't know. I just, I just thought the idea of spending, you know, 10 minutes of my life to remove the little fringy paper on the top would, would say a lot more about me than it would about the fringy paper. But it needs to be so nice and neat. <laughs> well, funny things in real in the real world. Whenever I have a, a pad or something that has the little fringy paper on top of it, it makes me nuts. I always get rid of it. You know. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I know. It doesn't it? Doesn't does it? No. All right. Well, why don't we take a break so you can go deal with your fringy paper? All right. And uh, talk about our first sponsor, and that would be Smile. I love Smile software. First sponsor ever to come to us and say, "Hey, we like what you guys do. We want to support you." Yeah. Um, yeah. So are we talking about text expander today? 
Okay. Uh, Text Expander um, is the app that keeps on giving for me, and I keep finding more and more innovative uses for using Text Expander. And I was sitting around and saying, gosh, I think I'm going to have to to either convince my bosses to um, – you know, let me buy a, a Mac and put it on my desk at work, or I'm I'm gonna have to convince the guys at Smile to make Text Expander for the PC because I am saving so much time using Text Expander on my Mac that I'm doing, you know, more and more work at home because it's easier to do work at home and and because I have Text Expander support. And so what I found is there's this great app on the PC that uh, was developed with Text Expander's blessing called Brevi. Uh, that will allow you to sync your text expander snippets back and forth between Dropbox uh, so that you can access your text expander snippets on your PC at work. So how cool is that? And it works just like um, text expander. I mean, it's, it's, it's brainless. I mean, you just type and it shows up. These are PC developers who saw how cool text expander was on the Mac and said, well, you guys do this for the PC. Text expander said, no, we don't develop the PC and they said, okay, well, can we and work with you? And they said, yes. So um, now I've got all of my text expander snippets on my Mac, so I can I can seamlessly go back and forth from my Mac at home to my PC at work and get all of my work done. I've got billing codes in there. I've got snippets for um, my signature certificate of service. I've got, you know, commonly used phrases or jargon from contracts. And so it, I just cannot go on and on and on about how much time and effort it saves me. The only thing I don't know is I don't know if my uh, brevi snippets equate over into the time ca- uh, time saved calculations in Text Expander for the Mac. Well, I, I'm with you since I, I finished the book, so now I'm able to be nerdy again, and I'm working on kind of an auditing all of my automation stuff, you know, and it's going to show up on the show. I think we're going to do a um, show on Keyboard Maestro pretty soon because I'm digging that right now. But the uh, uh, so, so I'm using Text Expander more than ever for automation type stuff. So, you know, following up on the show we did with Brett, I've added a ton of Markdown stuff to Text Expander um, and some of his Perl scripts where we can make Text Expander do a lot more than just substitute words. Uh, it's a great app and just use it all the time. And I just don't think there's really anything to compare to it. I know there's other text expansion apps out there, but none of them that have the robust tools that, that Text Expander does. Syncs over Dropbox. You can use it on a PC. Now it syncs automatically to your iOS version of Text Expander Touch, which is a huge feature. So now you don't have to deal with trying to sync it over. It just happens. So now your Text Expander snippets show up. You can uh, download a free trial of Text Expander at smilesoftware.com. It's available for purchase for $35, uh, either from the Smile website or uh, from the Mac App Store. All right. Thank you, Smile, for your kind support of our show. Yes, and you know, they don't just make email and contacts and calendars over at Google. They're also getting into the web browser business. Yeah, you know, I need to. Uh, I've been using Chrome more and more, particularly in in um, in trying to prepare for the show. And I, this this could be a browser that I could find myself switching over to. Yeah, and that's a, that's a future show for us. I think we need to go through the browsers in detail. But you know, so Chrome was. Uh, it's been a while now. It's been a couple of years, I think, that it's been out. Chrome's been and, out for a couple of years, yeah. And I, you know, I always viewed it as Google's attempt to kind of build a platform because you know Google makes web apps, and so why not make a browser so they can write their web apps towards the browser? I mean, the, you know, I think a, a problem I would think they would have before Chrome was you know we want to add this feature to our web app, but Microsoft or Apple or Mozilla is not going to add 
that feature. So we're going to, you know, it's, they're not going to support that feature. So they said, well, why don't we make our own? And then you can always, you know, write your apps to that. And I think that if you use the Google apps, the best experience is probably going to be using them through Chrome. Although I, I always use them through Safari and I don't seem to, to be missing anything that I know of at least. Um, the, the thing about Chrome though, that's really great is it's so fast. Chrome is very fast. And I, it's cr- Safari is a little bit on probation for me right now. You know, there was this whole DigiNor certificate issue and Safari was one of the last browsers to be updated because Apple was kind of late in, in issuing a security update and, you know, updates for Safari are kind of few and far between. And with plugin and extra browser functionality, you know, with X marks and one password and with all my bookmarks and passwords being synced across various web browsers, you know, I'm just finding that less and less my browser matters. I mean, I always find that I have to have a couple of browsers because we still unfortunately have, you know, certain pages that won't load correctly with certain browsers. But although I would say Safari is still my primary browser, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking. I like the way that you can search in the URL bar, the address bar, the Omnibox. Yeah. And that is something in Chrome that has thrown me for a little loop. So we're we're so used to in in other browsers of having basically two boxes at the top of the browser, one being a URL box and the other being, in my case, a, a Google box or a search box. And in Chrome, that's all built in together. So it's they call it the Omni box, and it's just supposed to know what you want. And in my experience, it's been pretty accurate. So if you just type, you know, like CNN, it's supposed to know that you want to go to cnn.com or search cnn or i don't know but it's smart i don't understand why that's not in every browser i mean it just seems like such a great idea the other thing that i really like about chrome is that it is pretty hard to have a copy of chrome that is out of date because chrome is is very security aware it automatically updates itself and it also takes care of automatically updating Flash. It uses its, I don't know if it uses its own own version or its own variant of Flash, but it, it's got Flash built in and it automatically takes care of getting all that updated. So you don't have to worry about, am I using an insecure browser? Am I using an out-of-date version? Am I using an out-of-date version of, of Flash? It just kind of always gets updated and always works. And they were one of the first browsers to really implement sandboxing so that if something happens in one of your tabs or something bad happens, it's sandboxed into that tab. It, um, I don't use Flash on my computers. I don't have it installed. And um, my sneak, if I have to really see something in Flash, is I open it in Chrome because it's... And I'm in, I'm in uh, rocky shores here because I don't really know that much about this. But the, uh, as I understand it, Flash is kind of embedded in the Chrome code. So it's part of Chrome. It's not a plug-in. Right. So if you don't have Flash installed you can still see Flash content using Chrome. And so, wow. So has that, have you talked, talk, talk about that a little bit. Has that created problems at all? Not at all. I mean, actually, I, and it's not my idea. I got it from John Gruber. I'll put a link in. He did this. And I think when he got his MacBook Air or something, he wrote an article about it. But I just got thinking, you know, I've had so many friends that, that come to me with battery problems that in the end end up being Flash problems. You know, where they're just using a lot of processes. And even my wife's computer happens all the time. I mean, I'll just go downstairs and I'll walk by her desk and I'll hear her fan running and she's, you know, in bed. You know, so mm-hmm. I'm thinking, why is the fan running on this computer just sitting here? And I inevitably I'll find she's got a few 
browser tabs open with flash running and it's it's running the processor at full tilt even though she's not even sitting at the computer so i just decided you know what i'm going to see if i can do it without and when i got my macbook air it didn't have flash installed you know now apple computers don't ship with flash right. i think that's true for imax too but i know it's true for my air so i said okay well let's see how i can do with this and, and gruber had a great link where he talked about in safari you can enable development mode and then so you can get, be on any web page and you can go up to the develop menu bar tab and say open with and you can just open that same page with a different browser so what i do is i just i work in safari and we're going to do a show on this i don't want to get into great detail about why i use one over the other but you know suffice it to say i prefer safari but if i run into something and I, it's a flash and i just absolutely have to see it um then what i'll do is i'll go to the develop button in the menu bar and I'll say open with Chrome and it opens with Chrome and I can watch the flash and then I'll close Chrome. Now does that does that work for like completely flash built things like Hulu or Flash Video or things like that? I guess you know I don't watch Hulu on my computer so uh, but I would presume that yeah anything that's flash would work in Google Chrome so it's fine. Hmm. I'm going to check that out. Yeah it is nice and and the thing is I know I never have flash dragging down my system and See, that's again, I, I'm starting to wonder if I just am a fanboy or something because I, you know, I'm definitely with Apple on this. I don't want a lot of flashy stuff. I used to have Flash Bash and Flash Killer apps, and I finally decided, well, why don't I just get rid of it entirely? The thing that's odd about it is um, it's very rare that I need it. You know, it's not that often that I bump into some type of Flash that I must see. I mean, there are plugins to get, you know, YouTube and HTML5 and other things. So, and it seems like increasingly people are publishing to the web without being dependent on flash. Well, and I hope so. And, and a lot of, a lot of websites will gracefully fall back. They'll, they'll prefer flash, but if you don't have the flash involved, they'll fall back to HTML five and you'll never know. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I was making a note here to get this Gruber article in the show notes. Yeah. If you haven't done this, if you haven't heard about it, it's worth a try. And, and he explains how to remove flash. Yeah. I think I'm going to go uninstall flash right now. Yeah. And it it gets rid of the security concerns, you know, because there's always these flash-based security attacks. And I don't know. I I just find it kind of... Uh, and I guess worst case scenario, you just reinstall it. Yeah. And I have not felt the need to at all. It's just like, you know, I used to use that app. And what was the name of it? Flash Bash is the one that... Well, there's Flash Blocker and then there's... um That blocks it or click to Flash. Click to flash. That's yeah. it. I wrote a big article about it, Max Sparky a long time ago. Yeah. So what I noticed was um, what that app does is when you know there's flash content on a web page, it just puts a, a blank box on the page where it's at. And what I noticed was I almost never clicked on those things. And if you want the flash to appear, you click on it and it would show up. And you know it's it's almost always ad based stuff. You know, so I realized then that I didn't really need flash that much, which gave me the. Um, you know, the idea of saying, okay, well, let's just remove it entirely and see what happens. And then Flash Frozen is the app now. I think it was previously called Bash Flash, but Flash Frozen is the app that you can, it's the menu bar app that will tell you, um, warn you when choosing a certain percentage of your CPU, and then you can kill it. Yeah, it, it turns red if you get over like 20%, and then you just push a button and it kills all the Flash. I put that on my wife's computer, but she just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't click with her. Well, there's also a feature you can set it to auto kill. Yeah. Maybe you need to turn that feature on. Well, we, you know, we talked in a prior show, or maybe it was a feedback about batteries or something. I know I've told this story on the show, but you know, I had a friend who, him and his wife, had 
two computers and they, they really thought hers was broken because the battery was lasting half as long. And it was just that she was running flash. All right. Anyway, well, we're supposed to be I think talking we got about Chrome. kind of sidetracked there. Yes, we're supposed to be talking about Chrome. Um, yeah. The other thing about Chrome is Chrome is a development platform. So there's an entire Chrome web store. I mean, their entire you know we've heard about the Chrome books, and they're you know they're there's supposedly you know you're supposed to be able to run an entire computer off of just Chrome alone. So there's a Chrome web store where you can get among other things Angry Birds, of course, because you know you have not arrived until you've got Angry Birds on your platform. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was um, fellow five by fiver John Syracuse or Gruber. One of those two was talking about the difference between Android and Chrome, and how it makes more so much more sense to see Google doing something like Chrome, which is kind of just a web-based platform, as to, opposed to to Android, which is a you know software platform. I, I completely agree with that. It just seems to me like Chrome is the natural next step for Google with the type of stuff they do. Yeah, I'm just not sure it makes sense for me for them to be doing both. Oh, whatever. That seems very fragmented to me. There's a lot more zeros in their bank account than mine, so they they must have some pretty good ideas. They must have figured out something. So um, I'm I'm interested in in experimenting more with Chrome. I I think Chrome could be a contender to be my primary web browser. Okay. Well, Well, we're going to get back to that someday and uh, and do a full show. We'll do a full show on web browsers. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in that show, we're going to also talk about, you know, search techniques and tricks. I don't think that's really appropriate for this show. Yeah. Even though Google was started with search, it's now so much more. So let's talk, let's talk about what else we've got with Google. Let's, let's move on to Google Docs. Yeah. You know, I, I really like Google Docs. I, Google Docs is something that I want to use more. And I know Google is supposed to be on the web and in your web browser and so forth. But oh, if, if. You know what? If the next version of iWork came with integrate with Google Docs integration, I that would that would blow my mind. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen either. But politically and technologically, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> oh, I think technologically it could happen. Well, I don't know because you know the thing that makes Google Docs really amazing is the collaboration. I mean, I've said this before, probably not on the show, but I just think that uh, you know, there's. Google Documents is unmatched for collaboration. You know, I had a case where we were doing uh, night before jury instruction day, and uh, the other lawyer came up with all these new jury instructions, and I had you know a bunch of stuff to deal with on it, and I had a lot of other work to do. But we needed to get this thing done in like you know forty five minutes, and there was more typing than anybody could do in forty five minutes. So we had three people in the office working in one document at the same time, and it worked. You know, we opened a Google document. We just cranked it out. We had another uh, workflow guest, Jason Snell, the editor of Macworld, and he talked about how they use Google Docs. And, you know, every time Apple comes out with a new iPad or new iPhone or some new Apple something, and uh, Macworld always has the definitive article of questions and answers concerning the new iProduct. Um, and they get that up within hours of, you know, the announcement. And I always wondered how they did that. Well, it's Google Docs. So they've got, you know, five or six writers working in the same Google Doc doc file, you know, so it's a text file. And they're all typing at the same time. They're adding questions and they're they're adding to each other's answers. And if you read the, you know, the byline on those articles, there's always a bunch of people because they put that together really fast. And I don't think that would be possible with anything but something like Google Docs. 
Yeah. Google Docs is something that I wish that I used more often. And I guess we should back up to tell people who may not be familiar what it is. Uh, Google Docs is basically Google's office suite of online products. It includes spreadsheets, presentations, and documents. And it includes support for allowing you to upload your existing files. And the supported formats include basically the Microsoft formats or the OpenDoc formats, um, as well as, as David was mentioning, excellent real-time editing and collaboration tools. That is really where Google Docs um, builds on is, is collaboration. And then you can actually download or export um, into those same formats. So some people are saying that it, it can be an alternative to actually having an office suite. So I, I guess if someone sent you a, a Word doc and you didn't have Microsoft Office installed or OpenOffice or Pages or something that could read it, could you up, I guess you could upload it to a Google Docs account and open it. Yeah, it's not going to be real pretty, though. It, right. it depends on what the formatting is. If it's very simple formatting, you're going to be okay. Right. Um, if you ever want to have a giggle, try and put like a legal pleading into Google Docs and see what comes out. You know? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, Microsoft is putting together its own cloud-based solution. You know, they call it Office 365, I believe. And it's, it's a very different take. I mean, it, it's a Microsoft take to this where it's more about, you know, compatibility with the Office suite. But it's not so much about collaboration. Um, you know. You know these things are at this point, in my opinion, at a point where you know Google Docs is great for collaboration, and a word processor is great for making documents that you're going to print out and give to somebody. And those are two different things. I don't really see Google Docs as a kind of an end product word processor. And maybe in the future, as the web gets more powerful and the tools get more powerful, it can and probably inevitably will have the same ability of features that, you know, the most high-end word processor you can think of today has. But right now, that's not the case. I mean, for now, I see Google Docs, and the spreadsheets works the same way for me. I, I think both of them are great ways to work with people. I mean, I have an expert witness or somebody, and I'll put together a spreadsheet to talk about numbers, and it's, a, it's really easy to have it where everybody can be working on the same document at once. But at some point, that spreadsheet is going to get into numbers or Excel where it's going to get further work. But for the construction part of the, the story, I think Google Docs is a, is a great solution. And that has always been my criticism about Google Docs. And it's just the, from a, even from a collaboration standpoint, and David, you know, we've tried to do our show notes in Google Docs and I've always, we've always gone back to Omni Outliner, and, uh, which does not have a, you know, collaboration portion to it is I just have never found the the formatting of Google Docs to be what I would like it to be. And I've never found that they have a particularly good outlining mode, you know, for work collaborating. And and maybe that's just because we haven't tweaked them as the settings as nicely as we could. But I've I've always found that I can get a much nicer, cleaner, crisper, easier for my brain to understand formatting, you know, using a, a true dedicated outliner and, and sharing that back and forth with you, even though we can't be both working on it at the same time. Mm-hmm rather than going through and using Google Docs. So I think the the, the crispness and the formatting is, is where Google Docs does lose some points. But on the other hand, I think for basic use, I, I know that there are a lot of students who for very basic use, I need to type a term paper and turn it in. Uh, Google Docs is a perfectly acceptable solution. Yeah, we're also kind of at a crossroads. I mean, you and I are from the generation that, you know, we grew up realizing that everything that we type on a computer inevitably has to get printed out and handed to somebody because that's the way it happened. And as the internet has, you know, grown up around us, you know, I'm increasingly realizing that I type a lot of things that never see a piece of paper. 
and you know Google Docs is is kind of down that road. So I think we will see. I think Google Docs is going to get much better. I mean, you know, it's obviously a big product of the company. It's a it's one of their premier features, and I think they uh, they realize that it needs to get better, and I think it will. Um, it's not at the point yet where I'm using it a lot, but when I do use it for that specific purpose of collaboration, I'm a big fan. Now, I would be interested in getting some feedback from our listeners about how they're using and accessing Google Docs on iOS. I know the the Google mobile interface for Google Docs has gotten better over the years, um, but particularly if there are any third-party iOS apps they're using to access their Google Docs, I'd like to know what people are using, and we'll we'll share those in the feedback section of the next show. I, I can talk about that a little bit. I just okay. wrote a book about you know iPad at work. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the Google interface, the web-based interface, um, in order to make it really work on an iPad, for instance, you have to trick it into not giving you the mobile interface. Right, right. And, and gives you the web interface. And then it's very kludgy. It doesn't work well. Um, you know, it's just, it's very difficult. Um, however, um, some of these Office-based apps like QuickOffice and um, Documents to Go, they will sync with Google Docs. And so you can get your Google Docs on your iPad that way. So that works. But uh, if you think you're just going to log in on the website, it's, it's definitely not there yet. I'm surprised um, that Google doesn't what doesn't have uh, like a Google Docs app for the iPad because I think that would make a lot of sense. While it doesn't surprise me at all that you know that Microsoft isn't going to have such an app, it seems to me that Google would want it because you know they're just all about getting more people to use their stuff. Maybe they will. Maybe Apple's blocking it. Who knows? But the oh, uh, I think if Apple was blocking it, we might have heard something about it. But yeah, but I, I do think it would make sense for Google to have a really robust Google Docs app on the iPad, and they don't yet. All right, let's talk about Google Reader. Yeah, I love Google Reader. Use it all the time. Well, um, Google Reader is an RSS aggregator, and I use RSS feeds as, as David. I know you do all the time because I'm you know, kind of charged with keeping on top of a lot of information. And I certainly can't go to 80 or a hundred websites a day and, and read all the information. So I need that information to come to me. And we did a show on this. I'm going to put it in the notes uh, about, you know, dealing with the onslaught. I think, yeah, managing the onslaught is what the name of that show was. Yeah. Um, now you use Google reader, but you use it as a backend, don't you? You don't actually use Absolutely. the Google reader web interface. Yeah. You know, getting back to my earlier discussion, I'm not a big fan of the, of the look of the Google, you know, web interface. Although, you know, it's the same thing. They have great keyboard shortcuts. In fact, the keyboard shortcuts for mail uh, translate largely over to reader. I mean, J and K work and S for starring and all that stuff that you got used to with mail. Once you learn it for mail, it works as well for reader. And I've used it, but I'm a really huge fan of a a Mac app and iOS app called Reader with two E's. And uh, I do everything there. But they, the first thing you do when you install Reader is you put in your Google Reader account. So they basically use Google Reader, and then they give you a front end through their app. Right. Um, and again, like you said, the interface is, is love it or hate it. But one of the things that is nice about Google Reader that allows all of these other applications to use it as a back end is it not only aggregates all of these these feeds, but it has some great organization tools that allows you to organize them to files and to folders into different segments. So you can have one for blogs or one for tech and one for news and uh, what other things. But it also has some great sharing capabilities. So you can share out either single or a group of feeds. So David, if I had a group of feeds that were related to Mac Power users, I could send you that whole group of feeds and, and say, hey, David, you know, here's a group of feeds that you need to follow related to our show. 
Um, or if we had a whole group of feeds related to Mac Power users, which, you know, we really don't other than our own RSS feeds, which you can find on our website, by the way. Um, you know, you can, you can share them on your own site. So you can either share them out as a link or share them on your site. But as you mentioned, it's the backbone for a lot of other RSS systems. I've been using NetNewsWire for years and years and years back, you know, when it had its own support. And I, I may need to look into Reader. The only reason I haven't switched is just because I've spent so much money with NetNewsWire over the years getting the iPhone and the iPad and the Mac apps. And then, you know, they kind of abandoned me, but then they've got new development. And so I keep thinking that maybe they'll come back, but I'm going to have to do something. It's funny how you spend money on an app and then you use it just because you're like, I spend money, I'm going to use this, even though something better might come out that may even not cost anything. But just the idea of stopping using, I mean, I think I spent like $40 on NetNewsWire or something, you know, like years and years ago when it was a for sale app on the Mac. And well, it, it still works. The Mac app and the and the iPad app still work. And they also have a PC-based app called, I think, um, Feed Demon. And they're just, something, something's wonky, something's not quite right. It's just not real well supported. And, um, you know, while we're on the subject of RSS, how many feeds do you have? Oh, I'd have to go back and count. I, I don't know, between 250 and 300. Oh, that's a lot. Maybe, maybe not that much. I don't have that many. I mean, you know, I've got really good about, you know, in fact, one of the show I talked about, you know, putting your RSS feed on a diet. Recently, Ars Technica wrote an article about that, and uh, I'll put that in the notes here. And uh, there's a lot of kind of discussion over, you know, how many feeds should you have. I guess it really doesn't matter. Have as many as you want. You know? Well, uh, and a lot of mine are things that, that publish two or three things a, a week or sometimes three or four things a month. Yeah. So a lot of mine aren't, aren't big things, but uh, that's what I do. That's kind of my equivalent of, of getting the paper in the morning is um, yeah. I sit down with a, with a cup of coffee in fact, and that's a lot of the time while I do it at work, if I go into the office early, I'll sit down with my first cup of coffee at the office and um, and I'll go through the RSS feeds. And, um, you know, having having in- integration with other services like Instapaper is, is really big to me because a lot of times I'll, I'll send stuff to Instapaper to, to read it later. Yeah, I, I do subscribe to a few Firehouse type um, services like Macworld and CNN, mm-hmm. but Largely, uh, I really try to keep them to just, you know, like people like Eddie Smith over Practically Efficient is like an ideal RSS subscription for me. You know, he publishes once every day or two, and it's always something worth reading. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, either way, I I think RSS through uh, through Google, I think, is really almost the only solution anymore. I'm not really aware of another way to do it efficiently and if you look at like all the ios stuff all of them are tied to google i mean if google decided to get out of the rss business that would be a problem for a lot of people well and you also have to some degree the best of both worlds because as long as you have all of this data in google it's always in google you can always go to reader.google.com and get it but if you want to get a little freaked out Go in and look at your statistics one day, and it'll tell you what percentage of articles you've opened from this and that and how many hours you've spent. And it's just kind of amazing to me how much data they collect. Hmm. Maybe I won't. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's talk about our second sponsor. Yeah, our second sponsor, a uh, big milestone this, this past couple of weeks, is 1Password. And 1Password is now in the Mac App Store. I, I bought it day one, David. How about you? Me too. I mean, well, you know, there was kind of, I wish we had known in advance. Last we should, week, we would have put in our last, in our show last week. Yeah. Yeah. Because, 
that they put it in the Mac App Store. It's it's forty dollars, but it was in the App Store for two or three weeks at twenty dollars. And um, the way that works is, you know, we always used to talk about you can get a family license for seventy dollars. And I, the way I, in my family, I had we had I bought a license for myself, and then I bought a license for my wife, but I didn't get a family license because I did these like years apart. And it just didn't, you know, it just wasn't smart enough to say get a family license. But now I've got a teenager and I want to put one password on her computer. So for 20 bucks, I got, I got it on all the computers in the house, you know, because we're all using the same app store account. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I think it's a, it was a good move for one password. Yeah. Now one password has been on sale and I don't know how long that sale is going to last. So you may want to check or it may be gone. For twenty four ninety nine, I believe their regular price is forty nine ninety nine in the Mac App Store. But as you said, that is a family license. Um, and here's the catch: it is a free upgrade to version four when version four is released. Yeah, which is coming. Right now, if you do have version three point eight installed, which I did. Um, you may want to go ahead and delete the, the copy of three point eight before you install the new version. But I had no problems. I had um, my one password keychain in the uh in my dropbox and deleted the old version of one password put the new version on it just said enter your password boom it knew that everything was there now one password in the mac app store is lion only but it, like i said it is a free upgrade to version four if you're still running snow leopard you can still get one password version 3.8 from their website over at onepassword.com and they still have their regular pricing for the mac or for the family pack for $40 for a single user's license or $70 for a family license. And if you once you have one password on your Mac, you know that you're going to want it everywhere. So they have PC versions. You can get an iOS hybrid license for $14.99 uh, or an iPhone or an iPad individual version for $9.99. So you can have one password everywhere, and there's really no excuse not to because you've got to get your passwords. Yeah, and as we're sitting, as we're recording this, it's still $24.99. Uh, so... I would recommend getting it. Yeah, if it's uh, hopefully it's still twenty four ninety nine when we read this. If not, it's it's still a deal at fifty bucks for the for the family license. I got an email from a listener like, "Oh, you advertise for them? It's easy. You'll just get a free copy." Right? Oh, heck no, I paid for it. I mean, this this stuff I use every day. Well, well worth it. So, uh, congratulations to One Password on your very successful launch in the Mac App Store, and thank you for your continued support of our show. Okay, so uh, let's talk about. Um, some more Google stuff. Yeah. You've got, we, a, you've got an entry in here about Picasa. You know, I'm not a Picasa user, so you, you're on it for this one. Picasa is two things. Picasa is a, it is a web service, you know, kind of like a, a Flickr competitor. It is a web service that will host your photos. Um, and it is also an iPhoto competitor in that it is a service that will, you know, store and do some minor editing and, and other things for your photos. So it's really two things. So you can you can have Picasa web albums or you can download Picasa for your Mac. Now, the Picasa app will do normal things like it will import from your memory card. It will create photo collages and slideshows. It will do some basic photo editing like iPhoto will, and you can crop and rotate and get rid of red eye and that kind of stuff. It also has both faces and places support. Now, if it uses faces, it pulls the faces information from your Google contacts. And you can order prints. And it also, of course, integrates with Google Plus if you use the the Google Plus thing. So 
Picasa is an interesting competitor to iPhoto. Now, I am pretty entrenched in the the, the Mac system. I, I use iPhoto. I know you use Aperture. But what's interesting about Picasa is that it integrates with iPhoto. But a lot of things, a lot of the things that people don't like about iPhoto is that iPhoto kind of has this proprietary library where it moves all of your photos into the iPhoto library and it stores them there. And what Picasa does is Picasa scans and reads your photos. So what it will do is it will scan your iPhoto library and it will say, okay, I see all these photos are in your library, your iPhoto library. I can do anything you want with them in a read-only manner. So I can upload them to the web. You can create movies. You can order prints. But if you want to edit them in Picasa, then it can import a separate copy from iPhoto. So you can use all the photos in your iPhoto library if you want to upload them to the web and, and leave iPhoto alone. But, you know, use use Google Web Albums for, you know, like a competitor to, you know, the Mobile Me Web Gallery when that goes away or to Flickr. Or if you want to do something with Picasa, you can actually pull those photos in without messing with iPhone. Yeah, that's a good solution though, for the Mobile Me Web Gallery issue. You know, if you don't want to deal with uh, some of the other services. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, honestly, I'm not really sure. The reason I don't know anything about it is I just never really saw a reason for it. I mean, you've got iPhoto or Aperture. Um, the nice thing about using a Mac is the way some of these apps integrate throughout the system, and, and iPhoto and Aperture really integrate throughout the system. You know, when you plug your, your iPad into your Mac, there's not an option to hit your Picasa library, but there is for your iPhoto library. So well, it just never made much sense to me. There, there, and there is a plug-in, and I'll put a link to that in the show note, is that uh, Google has released a Picasa WebAlbums uploader that includes an iPhoto plug-in. So if you want to keep using iPhoto, but you want to upload to the Picasa web albums instead, because, you know, right now you can upload to Flickr or Facebook or something like that directly with an iPhoto. You know how when you go to the export menu in iPhoto where you can export to the desktop or wherever you want to do? They do have a plugin that will let you export to Picasa. Um, the one thing that I didn't like about Picasa, the web albums, is it was somewhat difficult for me to manage the privacy settings. And it may have just been that I didn't dig deep enough, but it, there tended to be two settings. It was either this is public to the world or this is private to only people who I've given the link to. I, you know, especially because this is something that integrated with Google plus I couldn't find any way to say, you know, this is limited to my Google plus friends, or this is limited to only people in these circles of Google plus. You know, I couldn't find a way to make more granular control of my privacy settings, but it seemed like it was either public to the world or it was not. So I, that's the thing. You know, I don't really, I haven't got used to the idea of why I need to put all my snapshots on the internet. You know, so many people do it now with Flickr and all this stuff and Facebook. And um, I just, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm old school. But I mean, like if I have a picture from a family gathering and I really like it, I'll email it to the people. But I, I just don't. I don't do these gallery things. I played with it a little bit with the mobile link service, but you know, none of my relatives were really using it, so I just shut it down. Hmm. But anyway, I mean, I get it. I mean, it just—I think maybe I'm just old-fashioned about that stuff. But I can, I can see a place for it. Yeah, I, guess, I think there's a place for it, but I think there's definitely a a risk of oversharing. Yeah, although I am starting to get into Instagram, I think I'm going to start doing some of that. Yeah. for fun stuff. Yeah. You know, I, honestly, I found, I know you, you hate this. 
um, Facebook has been an, an interesting and kind of safe place, believe it or not, to share photos because with the fine control that you can have over setting up Facebook's groups, you can say, I want to share this album with just my family or I want to share this album with just this group of friends. You can kind of segregate it that way. Yeah, they've got better about their privacy, haven't they? They have. Yeah. That's a long story for me. I have to look into it. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Google Voice. All right. You use Google Voice, don't you? A little. Google Voice is something that I keep wanting to use more, and I I can see the day where it could be my only phone number, but maybe not. Yeah. I, I keep be, being fearful that Google will take it away because, you know, sometimes they do that. Yeah. So what Google Voice is, it, it's really a phone number, and um, and it's you, know, you get it through the service. You have to tie it to some phone number in the real world. So how it works is you uh, set up an account, and they give you a phone number. And you can have some say about what the phone number is, which is a lot of fun if you want to like figure out how to say, you know, call 98-David or something. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, uh, you set it up, you get this phone number, and then you can give that number to the world. And when you set it up, you have to tie it to a real-world phone number, whether it's your home number or your cell number or something. And then, you know, at its native level, it'll just ring through. Okay, but there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. Like you can say, I don't want any calls to come through or I only want calls to come through for this number. And, um, you know, and then when you call the number, then it goes through to the, to the real phone. Uh, so for instance, with Max Barkey, I was, people were asking me for my phone number in relation to, you know, uh, PR stuff. And you know, those PR people are, a lot of them are very nice, but a lot of them are really just like too much. And so I set up this Google phone number and I put it on my card. So, People didn't get my real cell phone number. They just got the Google Voice number. And the way I initially set it up is so any number that calls that Google Voice number goes direct to message. It never even rings me. But then Google Voice does a really cool thing. It, it tries to translate it. And it gives you the translation, which sometimes is quite humorous, but sometimes <laughs> is okay. Yeah. And, sometimes uh, so, it's enough to give you the gist of what they wanted. Yeah, and, and you can go in and listen to the messages and it sends you a link. So it becomes kind of like my answering service. And then the way I use it is, you know, I just give it to people like that. I don't give my home number or personal number to them. Uh, as an example, I'm going to drop names of celebrity rock stars like Mr. Man, right? So Merlin has my cell phone number or Katie has my cell phone number. They don't have my Google Voice number. But if I wanted to, I could have given them my Google Voice number and I could have put an exception in there. That says, you know, when this person calls me, put it through from this phone number. Mm -hmm. But with me, you know, I'm not that, it's, my life isn't that complicated. So I just said, you know, I'll just give them my cell phone number. But that's a really neat thing. You know, like my wife runs this scrapbooking business and she has a Google voice number for that. And it, it transcribes every call that comes in and she can say, I want to answer calls from this hour to that hour, but otherwise just put them in. So it's just, it's really a neat service. There's a lot you can do with it. Um, it's also, you know, you can use Google Voice to call out from your computer, which is kind of a new thing, and that works in Gmail. And, um, you know, it's really kind of an interesting developing technology. Yeah, I've used Google Voice for a while. Um, I've used it for a couple of years, and it solved a lot of problems for me, and it could have saved me a lot of money if it had been available a couple of years earlier. But Google has um, free long-distance calling. Well, first off, I believe it's only available in the U.S., so it has free uh, long distance within the United States and then inexpensive international calling. And it's also a way that you can do free SMS messages. And like you said, it's called screening, filtering, and blocking. So it sounds like you use Google Voice a lot of the same way that I use my Gmail account. 
as a filter. Yeah. Before it gets to my real account. Um, I use Google voice in a, in a similar, but in expanded way to that. And that I have a, um, a very, very basic bottom of the barrel, um, home phone number through my cable company. In fact, could not tell you if you put a gun to my head, what that home phone number is. I've, Never known. I think I might have known when when I signed up for it, you know, that this was what your number was going to be. But, you know, it was like some random number that made no sense to me. So uh, I got a Google voice number that that was a, you know, friendlier looking number, at least a number that made more sense and more in line with the numbers that I was used to seeing in this area. Um, and I gave that to everybody as my home phone number, because at that time I had no idea whether I was going to keep the cable company as my home phone service and I wanted some flexibility to, you know, either drop that altogether, but still use the the home phone line or to go to my, you know, regular AT&T service to, to be my home phone service or whatever. And I also had no long distance calling at home. And I also have the problem where before I got the microcell, my, my cell phone didn't work at home. So I had this Google voice number that I gave out to everybody and it rang to my, my home phone so that I was actually able to get calls at home. And because I didn't have long distance and I didn't have a cell phone that worked, I was able to use Google voice to call out to people who weren't in my local area without paying long distance charges that I would normally use on my cell phone um, that I couldn't use. And then I've also used Google voice like you've used it, you know, kind of as a filter. It's now the number that I give out to everybody. There are people who have my cell phone number, but nowadays when people ask me what my number is, I just give my Google voice number. Uh, I've also used it for free um, uh, SMS because I have a very limited SMS plan. So I SMS for my Google voice number. Yeah. And as you're listening to this, I realize the irony that I talk about how freaked out I'm about people reading my mail. That's a reason why I don't use Gmail. And now you're talking to them. But I let them go ahead and transcribe phone calls people sent to me. <laughs> so. I realize that, but you know, I guess the difference is I'm not giving Google voice number out to clients and, and friends that those things aren't going through Google. Those yeah. are going directly to me Yeah, and the stuff that comes in on Google voice is, is really almost like, you know, spam voice calls almost. Mm, I don't think all of mine are. Yeah. So I would, I would actually really miss Google voice if it went away. Well, I don't know. I, I think it's a good service too. I, I would miss it, but it, I'm using it. Um, in a way to kind of make life easier. I'm not really using it as a primary voice line, but you know, who knows? I mean, like someone wrote in and said, you know, you should have one email for the rest of your life. Maybe your Google voice numbers turns into your phone number that you carry around with you for a long time. Right. Okay. We, we talked earlier when we were talking about Google docs and some of this other stuff about the Google apps. Um, let's talk about that now. Okay. Um, so Google apps is free for up to 10 users, and we'll put links in the show notes. So this is Google on your own domain. So uh, it's somewhat limited because you're not going to get, you know, tremendous support from Google. As Google said, there's there's no phone number that you can call. But you can get Gmail and Calendar and Docs and Google Sites and, you know, Reader, Blogger, Procasa Web Albums, all of the the normal Google functionality that you would normal get normally get but at your own domain name so we've got our at macpowerusers.com tied to a google account that gives us access to all those things and if we were a small operation which thankfully we are and we have a need for less than 10 accounts that can be free and i think we just had to go in and um update our records with our domain registrar just to make sure that our email got forwarded to google and it was a pretty painless process it was um i think we 
might have gotten some duplicate messages for a couple of hours, but after that, it was it was all taken care of. I think uh, Google Apps starts at five dollars per user per month, or if you um, if you'll pay them for a year, it's like fifty dollars per user per year. And then you get some additional support. You'll get um, 25 gigabytes of email storage per user with some additional BlackBerry and Microsoft Outlook interoperability. And then they also have a 99.9% uptime guarantee. You know um, what the privacy issues are if you did Google Apps. I mean, do they stop reading your mail and, and serving ads? Well, what they say, you know, and here's one of the FAQs, it says, does Google give third parties access to my organization's data? It says, Google does not share or reveal a private user content such as email or personal information with third parties except as required by law on the request by a system user administrator or to protect our systems. Yeah, but right now, you know, that doesn't say that Google's not collecting that information. It just says they're not sharing it. Right. Whereas with my mobile me account, um, I'm pretty sure that Apple's not reading my emails. Right. Well, there's another FAQ that says what kind of scanning or indexing is done. And it says in order to provide some of the core functions in Google Apps, our automated system will scan and index some of your data. For example, uh, spamming and virus detection. Ah, email is scanned so we can display contextually relevant advertising in some circumstances. Note that there is no ad-related scanning or processing in Google Apps for education or businesses with ads disabled. Okay. Well, that may be the, the answer. Then you set up a business account and you disable ads. Right. But there is a, there's an entire section of, of privacy that I would suggest that businesses read. And Google seems to be very good about support for their business clients. I, I'm sure you could get someone on the phone if you were looking at, at buying this for a business. Okay. And and you and I have talked about this, David. You know, both of our our businesses are considering going to Google Apps as a replacement for Exchange servers. Yeah, well, I you know, two thousand three Exchange servers gotta go at some point. Right. Yeah. We're kind it, of in the same boat. It would certainly be more convenient for me if my office was on Google Apps and using the Google services, because as a Mac user, that's much easier. Although, you know, if we had a modern exchange server, it wouldn't be a big deal because that's all built in now to Lion and Snow Leopard. So uh, either way, an upgrade for me either means it's going to be an improvement. But just from a from a small business perspective in terms of, a, you know, maintenance and cost of implementation, you know, if you're looking at hosting your own exchange server, you're talking about having a rack in your office with a server and storage and either an IT person in-house or an IT service to maintain it. Yeah. Or you're the IT person. And the other issue with all of that is, you know, people say, well, you know, why are you going to put this stuff in the cloud that's unsecure? But as soon as you set up an exchange server, that thing is plugged into the Internet and people can get into it. You know, I mean, it's not, there's no, you know, the only way you can really make sure that nobody reads it is if you write it on a piece of paper with invisible ink and lock it in a safe, you know, so... As soon as you plug into the internet, there's a chance that it can get read. Yeah. Okay, uh, so where are we at now? Uh, what, you know, let's talk about some of these uh, these Google backup solutions. Right, because you know the the cloud is great, and I love the cloud, and I love Google for being in the cloud. But sometimes it rains, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there was a, a recently, I think last week or so, there was a Google Docs um, outage that had people flipping out. And then I think it was in the last couple of months, Google had an issue where there was a very small percentage of users who ultimately lost data, but there were users who lost um, 
you know, Gmail data because Google had an issue with one of their servers and it went down and people were affected and lost, lost some of their, their data. So it is important that you be aware that when the data is on the cloud, you lose some, some control over it. And backup is important because obviously you're going to back up your Mac, but how do you back up the cloud? So there are a couple of options. Um, one that I like is called Cloud Pull. It's available in the Mac App Store. Um, and we've actually got a couple of copies to give away. The developer generously contacted us before the show. So follow us on Twitter, and I think maybe in Facebook we'll we'll throw some coupon codes out for Cloud Pull uh, in the Mac App Store and, and see how that goes. But what Cloud Pull does is it looks at up to 10 Google accounts, and it pulls documents, reader, calendars, and contacts. And my favorite thing about this is it backups the files in standard file formats. So let's just say that Google implodes and you can never get that stuff back again. These are all standard file formats that you're going to be able to open with other applications. And the backups are stored locally on your machine, not in some other cloud service. So if you can't get access to the internet or whatnot, it's on your local machine. You can worry about security or backing up from there as you like. What I like about Cloudpool is it's kind of a, a one-time fee thing. It's uh, $24.99. It's available in the Mac App Store. So, of course, you can, you know, you've got all the, the ability to use it with, with multiple computers. But you buy it once. It will back up up to 10 accounts. It will back it up locally. In my case, I've got mine being backed up to my Drobo, and that's being backed up in other places. And then you don't worry about it from then on out. So... I, I like cloud pull and, you know, even if you can't catch a free version that we're giving away, definitely check them out in the Mac app store. And then there's the subscription services like backupify. Yeah. Back, backupify is, is, is a different method. Um, it backs up your cloud to another cloud, which is fine. I think the cloud that it uses in this case is Amazon S3. Um, backupify has some, some free content, um, up to one gigabytes for what they call social media, which would include Gmail or Twitter or Facebook and things like that. Um, or you can, uh, if you want to back up your Google apps, you can, it's a, I think it's $3 a month uh, for up to 25 gigabytes. They have a, a bunch of different plans up at backupify.com and we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, kind of on the same subject is offline support for this Google stuff. I mean, like Google Docs and Calendar, all this stuff assumes that you've got an internet connection, right? Yeah. You know, you got to be plugged in. Um, Google Gears was a service that Google was working on to, you know, work with offline solutions for their stuff. Yeah, but they dropped that. That Google Gears is no more as of December of this year. Yeah. Um but you can use like an app that reads the data. Like if you're using BusyCal or whatever, you've got your Google Calendar stuff on your Mac. If you're using like one of the iOS apps I was talking about that where you sync your data, you've got it there where you can work with it offline. And I have to believe that Google is not giving up on the idea of offline use of their stuff when they drop Google Gears. I suspect that they've got some other idea. Well, they've already started to some extent. They do have offline support um, for Gmail, Docs, and Calendar, but it currently works with Chrome, uh, the Chrome web browser. And they say that future functionality is planned. Yeah, and, and that's probably the way they're going to push a lot of us to Chrome and say, look, you want to use our apps and you want to use this stuff offline, you got to use a browser that supports it, and the only one is Chrome. Right. Um, we didn't uh, really cover in this show, although I think we should talk about just a little bit as Google+. Because that's kind of the, the new thing, right? Says Mr. Antisocial Network. I'm not a big fan of Facebook. You know, I, I've had an on-again, off-again relationship with it. <laughs> I can't seem to stick with it. 
I guess, you know, uh, my problem with Facebook is, I don't know. I'm just not that public of a person. I don't really want to, despite the fact that I'm Max Sparky and all that stuff. I, I don't really see a reason to put out, you know, all my pictures of me in my pajamas on Christmas morning on the internet. Right. And um, I, every time I go into Facebook, because, you know, I wasn't, I didn't use it for years. Then my daughter started using it. So I said I should sign up so I can keep an eye on her. And I went in and like, I was getting all these invites from friends from high school. I wouldn't call them friends, people, acquaintances from high school, you know, and they want to be my friend. But then I'm thinking, well, if I make friends with this person then I'm going to be sharing, and I truly use Facebook as like the social network, I'm going to be sharing, you know, intimate details of my life with people that I didn't share intimate details with when I saw them every day. So then I was facing the question, do I just say no to them and sound like a jerk or you know, I didn't. No, you, know, you put I, them in a list called acquaintances. I don't know. I just, you know, I just, and my you solution down was, that list so they can't and, see you in your pajamas on Christmas morning. So I just decided, you know what? I'm just not going to do this. It's just not. It's just too much trouble for me. So I just stopped it. And, uh, and my daughter's still bugging me, Dad. You should get on Facebook. And uh, I don't know. And then so then Google Plus comes out, and because I'm a nerd, you know, um, quasi known nerd, Google got me in early, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And so I got in. And I kind of like it, but I don't really use it, you know. So, and I guess it's really the same thing as Facebook, but I've posted to it like three times. But, you know, getting ready for the show today, I saw Andy and Otka had a post about Indiana Jones. I got totally absorbed in it. So maybe there's hope for me with social media, but I'm not really sure yet. So I, I'm really like, like the last person on the world to give anyone advice about using these services. But Google does, I think, realize they need to get into this space, and they're trying with this Google Plus. I like Google Plus, um, except I just cannot manage yet another social network. I really like Twitter because it's the kind of thing that I can dunk my head in the stream for a little while, see what's going on, and then pull out and then feel like I haven't, you know, that I'm not obligated to keep up with it every minute of every day. Um, and then I've I've gotten involved in Facebook because that was the established, you know, social network and. I've I've learned how to use the privacy settings and lock that down, like you said. So these people that I didn't really know in high school don't get to know all the intimate details of my life. Not that I post intimate details of my life on Facebook anyway. And then Google Plus, I I like it and I want to like it. I just it's it's just like it's too much. It's just like the third thing that keeps you know. It's just like the extra ball that I can't keep juggled in the air. It just keeps dropping because it's one thing too many. And I feel like, you know, there are so many people following me over on Google Plus, and I feel like I need to post something there just to to keep it up. And I'm, I'm going, I'm looking for ways of, gosh, can I make certain Twitter posts post there, certain Facebook updates post there? But I know nobody wants this this cross posting thing that I'm just doing because it's easy. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know yet. <laughs> get get I, an I, RSS I, aggregator, and you can find my stuff. I think I'm more likely to stick with Google Plus than I am with Facebook. I just, I don't know. And then, you know, when I, when I read these articles about what Facebook does with the privacy, and now they're talking about, you know, doing facial recognition scanning, it's just, just too much for me. I just don't think those guys really care about privacy at all. Yeah. And I do. So that may be the reason why I'm never really on Facebook. And I'm not sure Google's any better, but at least for now... The nice thing about Google Plus right now for me is it seems to be kind of like a, uh, you know, a nerd convention. There's a lot of great nerdy guys on it and gals, and uh, so I enjoy kind of seeing what they're up to. But I'm not really sure how it all fits together. So, like I said, that's the only reason why I don't really want to talk about this a lot because uh, I am not, not giving any good information right now. All I'm talking, all I'm doing is whining. <laughs> 
All right. Let's move on. Yeah, while our Skype connection holds up, let's let's move on to our last sponsor, and that is uh, the Omni Group. Yeah. So Omni has uh, released a new application called OmniPlan, and this is a start-to-finish solution for planning all of your major products, projects. And the idea is that you can visualize, maintain, and simplify all of your projects. You can review all your tasks. You can optimize your resource management. You can try to control your costs. And you can monitor your entire project at a glance and collaborate with others, track your changes, and then make sure that you've got your work distributed efficiently and your resources allocated efficiently. Yeah. So where Omni Focus is managing your own tasks, Omni Plan is project planning. And, you know, project planning software is like a dirty word to a lot of people because it's so Byzantine and difficult to run. You know, there, I know a friend who does a Microsoft project for a living and she has to go to these conferences and spend like weeks learning the new features. OmniPlan fixes that. So think about Omni applying their magic and special touch to project planning software. And you've got OmniPlan. I'm really digging it. I'm using the 2.0 version now. Even though I'm in a small office, I do use project planning. And it's, it's just so fast to put it together. It's very easy. I go to the website. I know 200 bucks is a lot of money. So you know you have to think about this. But go to their website. They've got some great videos showing how easy it is to set up. And for me, when I send a project plan to a client and say, okay, this is the next six months of your case and what's going to happen, they love it. You know, they just absolutely love it. So uh, take a look at this thing. It's great. Yeah, you can find uh, OmniPlan. It's available at omnigroup.com or in the Mac App Store for $199. And we want to thank OmniGroup for their continued sponsorship of the show. Yeah, and, and if you're thinking about doing project planning, I mean, OmniGroup has the 30-day money-back guarantee. They have a downloadable trial. So Take a look at this. I, I, for me, OmniPlan is really the type of planning software I need. And uh, it may not have quite as many features as Microsoft Project, but, man, it's really manageable, and I can work in it so fast. Mm-hmm. I think it's really something worth looking into. Okay, let's get into feedback. We have quite a bit, actually. And we've been going for a while, so let's see how much we get through. Uh, Gerard wrote, and he talked about the Lion Mail keyboard shortcut. Um for sending account. I did a screencast about a long time ago about, you know, when you have multiple accounts and I set up these keyboard shortcuts and it was really easy at the time. You just put in the exact text of the sending account when you, you know, in the compose box for Apple mail and it would change the sending account. So you could switch between your mobile me and your Gmail and you know, your work account with a keyboard combo. And he says, how do I fix that? And, uh, you can't. I, I, if anybody hearing this knows how, I'd, I'd love to hear it. But the old trick of just creating a keyboard shortcut no longer works. It actually inserts a character and it doesn't switch the account. So uh, the way I'm doing it is just using the tab key. You know, when you tab between subject um, and the body, it actually goes through the sending account. And I use tab and then I hit the arrow down or arrow up to select the, key, the account I'm sending from. And then I, I move on. It's not as convenient as we used to have. So I'm not aware of an answer for that except what I do now. Bart wrote in to uh, talk to us about mail tags and mail acton. And he said, you briefly mentioned mail acton in the show, the mail show, number 56, but you didn't include a link to them in the show notes. Oops. Hopefully we fixed that by now, David. Um, I think I did. Okay. If I did, I'll put it in the show. Okay. 
Uh, and he says, this may be what Launch Bar and OmniFocus seems like to everyone else for Kate and David, but I'm still a folders person and mail act ons hotkeys made rules in uh, email filing so easy. The thing that Katie and David didn't mention is that I love the ability to set up special commands for acting on mail. For example, I periodically go into uh, get a huge number of emails on one particular topic that I need to keep, but that require only a brief and uniform immediate response. So I set up a command in Mail Octom with a couple of keystrokes. I'm able to reply to the person and file their email into a special folder. He says it's even easier than using Text Expander. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I've never thought of doing that before. Good idea, Bart. Um, we got a, an email from David. I'm sorry, Scott wrote me. And he asked about, you know, since we switched over to 5x5, he noticed that the screencasts are gone. And for those of you who aren't aware, I did a series of three screencasts on, um, on OmniFocus. It's like three hours by the time you get through them all. And depending on who you ask, it's either um, an amazing three hours of your life that will change everything you do, or it's a death march. I'm not sure which one. But uh, when we did the transition to 5x5, five five, they didn't come over. And that's just because of the way the script ran. So, But the screencasts are still available over at MacPowerUsers.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, we haven't really decided what to do because pulling them into 5x5 five five at this point would create three new shows and everybody would get it in their feed and a lot of people would not be happy with that. So I'm not sure if they'll ever make it out of 5x5 five five or not. Yeah, and it would completely mess up our show numbering. They'd be like show 59, 60, and 61. So if you are an OmniFocus user and would like to listen to me talk about it for a long time and how I do it. Uh, watch, I'd like to watch you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really nice. I think we did a pretty good job with those screencasts. It was a lot of work. Uh, but go over to the Mac Power users or look at the link in the show notes, and you can go check those out. Yeah. Okay. Um, I got a, uh, a email from JP about pages and docs, and it's it's an interesting comment. He says, isn't Apple doing the exact same thing that Microsoft did with dot .docs? Because I think, David, you made a comment in the last episode that Microsoft really turned people off when they switched to the .docx format. He says, Pages is proprietary and nothing can read it but Pages. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Now, you can export into doc format. but It's kind of funny. If you look at a Pages file on a... On a, on a PC and Windows PC, it looks like a folder because it's a package. Right. Yeah, you can export, but um, th- my point about Microsoft was they were using this doc format that had become pretty universal, and a lot of other apps were using it, and then they went over to DocX. And I mean, I know there was like issues in the European Union that people not adopting it because of the file format. And, uh, it just, I think that's a time when a lot of us started thinking about, well, what else can we do? Right. Um, we also got an email from Clifford about Entourage saying that it supports Mappy, um, uh, which is the Microsoft proprietary protocol used between servers and clients, and that the new Outlook does not support it, which is a big deal. Um, it uses the Outlook web access. So if you need a Mappy support, then you're stuck with Entourage. But I, I still stand by you know, getting away from Entourage if at all possible. Brett wrote in and said that during the feedback section of the last show, somebody said that Dropbox didn't do versioning, and that's incorrect. By default, Dropbox keeps old versions of your files for 30 days before dumping them, but if you purchase the PackRat feature add-on, which he said is a screaming deal, you get versions of all your files going back for as long as you've had PackRat. Not sure 
what that is. Yeah, I'll have to look into it. Now, Brett, who wrote in, is Brett Kelly. And uh, Brett's a friend of mine. He's the guy who wrote the book on Evernote. And uh, I think we may be seeing him on our show soon. Uh, And he said, by the way, I'm a die-to-the-wool Vim user here, and I love TextMate's OS integration and how Macish it felt, but I can't get how... Uh, past how poorly negatives it uh, does text compared to Vim. Yeah. So. We got a lot of uh, email and, and, and contact from people saying, you know, you did, you, you gave, you know, some treatment to Vim, but you ignored Emacs. And, uh, you know, unwittingly, I entered into a religious dispute. <laughs> you know, the, the idea of that show, a power text editing, our last show, was really to talk about uh, really myself, you know, I mean, I was selfish. I just wanted to talk about people who write and who aren't programmers. And I, I feel like Emacs and Vim are like really so far down that rabbit hole that that's not really an option to somebody who's just looking to a better way to do text editing. So, you know, maybe one day we'll talk about Emacs and Vim, but uh, I don't think that was really the show for it anyway. Okay, so... How do you get a hold of us, Katie? Well, you can find uh, links to everything that we've talked about as well as how you can contact us and links to everything that we do over at www.macpowerusers.com. And you can also find us over at the 5x5.tv slash MPU site. Right. You can email us your comments at feedback at macpowerusers.com. And you can find us on Twitter at macpowerusers or Katie is at Katie Floyd and I'm at Max Barkey. And I'm also talking um, yeah. Uh, at the uh, October 1st up at the Macintosh Computer Expo at Petaluma. So if you're in Northern California, I already heard from a couple friends of the show who are up there and are planning to come by. So if you are an MPU listener, make sure to say hello. I'm going to be there all day and it's going to be a lot of fun. Some great speakers, Chris Breen, uh, Adam Christensen, Jeff Gamet, Ted Landau, Jason Snell, who was a guest here once, Derek Story. Uh, I think if you're a Mac user, uh, Petaluma equals fun on October 1, 2011. That does sound like a lot of fun. You guys on the West Coast have all the fun. Yeah. So uh, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Mac Power Users. Remember, we'll be giving out a few copies of Cloud Poll through Twitter and Facebook. Um, and we love iTunes comments. Thank you to all of you uh, who have stepped up and left us some reviews on iTunes since we lost all of our reviews with the 5x5 transition. Uh, really really warms my heart when I go over to iTunes and see all the lovely comments that you have left. So thank you so very much. Uh, and please continue to do so. And thanks to our sponsors, smile software, one password, Omni group and launch bar for supporting the podcast. All right, David, what's next? Uh, this is a kind of an, if, if then, uh, <laughs> show. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so anyway, I've, I've talked a little bit. I wrote a book called iPad at work. It's uh, There's like 10,000 copies of it now sitting in a warehouse in New Jersey waiting for uh, people in Cupertino to, to release iOS 5 into the wild because the book's all about iOS 5 features, among other things. So uh, the book's ready to go. And uh, if we have a new iOS 5 between now and the next show releasing, we're going to do a show about all the workflows and background about how I wrote this book. Um, if we uh, don't have iOS 5, then we're going to have a workflow guest with Michael Lopp, who's the guy over at Rans and Repose. And if you don't know who that is, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Definitely go subscribe. Michael uh, is a really smart guy and posts some amazing stuff and I think he'll be an excellent workflow guest. Good deal. All right. Well, thank you for sticking in there with us. We, we've had, you may, hopefully by the time this is edited, you won't be able to tell. We, we've had a ton of Skype issues, a ton of audio issues this call. So hopefully I'll be able to edit those all out. But thank you for sticking in with us. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.